0: Human history, like a river, will keep moving forward with moments of both calm waters and huge waves. We have before us the opportunity to forge a new world order. The problem with modern-day's unipolarity is precisely
1: like that. The West is leading. Ukraine down the Primrose Path. We
0: don't have enough tanks, we don't have enough vessels, we don't have enough planes.
1: To bring chip productions here to the US. I'm Andrew Collingwood. I write for Bornbrook magazine and other online outlets on geostrategy, economics and British politics.
0: Hi, my name is Philip Pilkington. I'm a macroeconomist who spent nearly a decade working in investment management.
1: Both of us believe that the world is undergoing a once a century geopolitical and macroeconomic shift. After decades of American leadership, the unipolar world is finally ending.
0: Since World War II, America has set the terms of global trade and it's backed these up with its control over international institutions and its enormous military power. But things are changing. China is still rising. Russia has reawakened. Europe, America's long-time partner,
1: is in long-term decline. Each week, we'll be dissecting three stories that illustrate the shift, from how semiconductor shortages in Taiwan influence Japanese military spending to how a new scramble for rare earth metals is remaking US foreign policy.
0: We'll be talking about economics and geopolitics, but most importantly, we'll be talking about how they influence each other, how resource competition drives the great game of empires and alliances, and how that story is the great emerging tale of the 21st century.
1: This is multipolarity, charting the rise of the new multipolar world order. Coming up this week, the Bank of England has yanked up interest rates again. Some in the press think they've gone too far, but is there something bigger at play than just strangling inflation? Is the bank secretly trying to head off under the trust level tailspin in the currency?
0: If it were a country, California would be the world's fifth largest economy, it's presently running a 10% budget deficit. Is this just the start of a wave of municipal-level defaults across America and the world? Is California about to be
1: Detroitified? And America about to be California catered? Italy was the only G7 nation to join the Belt and Road. Now it's leaving. Georgia Maloney is that rarest bird. A pro-American populist. Is there a battle underway for the soul of Europe? And where will Georgia get her belts and her roads now? But first... Piling on the pounds. Uh, this week, the Bank of England increased interest rates by 25 basis points, or 0.25%, to 4.5%. It's the latest in a breakneck increase in interest rates from uh, essentially zero up to the current level of 4.5%. That's come out extremely quickly. It's essentially mirrored the Federal Reserve in the United States. Both have been alarmed that inflation was not indeed transitory, as they all predicted, but in fact uh, appears to be increasingly anchored into expectations and ideas, and they have been essentially playing catch-up after having held interest rates low for so long. It's starting to get quite controversial now, though, because there are certain indicators on both sides of the Atlantic, both in Britain and in Europe and also in the United States, that economies are starting to peak and roll over. In fact, inflation in the US is starting to come down. It's slightly more persistent uh, in the UK, and increasingly, we're starting to see other indicators as well. For instance, uh, M three money, which is a it, it, it's a measurement of money within circulation, in circulation within the economy, uh, but also you know beyond just bank deposits. M three is a much broader measurement of money. And that is starting to slow or indeed contract. There are a whole range of other signs of strain uh, within economies on both sides of the Atlantic. And some people are becoming increasingly concerned that central banks are, are behind the eight ball. And now they're trying to catch up. But now they're going too far. They're kind of repeating the mistake. The, you know, they held rates too long at very low levels. And that let inflation out of the bag. And now they're going too fast and continuing the tightening cycle for monetary policy for too long, even as economies start to roll over. And people are starting to argue this point, both about the Bank of England and the Federal Reserve and even the European Central Bank as well. So these interest rates are increasingly contentious, I would say. However, I think in Britain, one of the points that you've made, Philip, is that there may be reasons other than inflation when it comes to raising interest rates. You've made the point that it might be a matter of defending sterling as well, yes?
0: So Britain's a very specific case here. As you said, um, the, the recent rate hike in England has sparked off this debate about whether they're going too far. I'm quite surprised by this because the debate on the um, Bank of England rate hike seems much more... Um, pronounced than the debate on the federal funds rate hike. That's in spite of the fact that uh, Britain has about a a 5% higher rate of inflation. So it's just over 10% here. It's around 5% in the US, give or take. Um, That's a very large inflation differential. So it would seem to me that, you know, even thinking about it from the point of view of inflation control and recession, you'd probably give the Bank of England a little bit more leeway to hike rates, even just looking at it from that perspective. But for some reason, people are pushing back on the Bank of England hike rather than really the Fed hike. It may be a sequencing issue. People see that the Fed hike is setting off, as you say, these stresses, the credit crunch we talked about recently on the podcast, and then they're kind of, after they've seen that in America, they're kind of projecting that onto Britain without thinking it through too much. But as I said, and as you said, the problem is that Britain's quite unique. And we know that Britain's quite unique because of what happened with the very short-lived government of Liz Truss. They put forward some modest tax cuts and the financial, the international financial markets freaked out. There was a turmoil in the gilts market. That's the bond market in the UK and there was turmoil in the sterling market. What that indicates is that the guilts and sterling market are quite fragile. They're willing to respond negatively to even, as I said, what I would have considered pretty modest tax hikes or tax cuts. In markets for currencies generally, there's usually two drivers of a currency's value now sometimes there's more if the currency is highly tied to a commodity like iron ore in brazil or, or oil in russia for normal countries that don't have a huge commodity sector there are typically two components the first is um inflation differentials um if you, if your inflation differential is as it is now with the uk five percent higher than a key trade partner like the us the currency should have to come down to offset the price imbalance that's so that your exports remain competitive and the imports remain fairly priced the other driver in currency markets is called carry it's relative interest rate spread so this is mainly financial markets trading it's quite simple really if there's a higher interest rate in america than in britain then capital will flow from britain to america because they can get you can get a higher return on uh, on your your cash holdings on short-term bonds and so on in the case of the uk since at least the 1980s anyway the main determinant of sterling value has been the interest rate differential it's been carry there are a lot of reasons for that but the short answer is i think we've said it on the show before the uk economy is dominated by the financial sector it has been since the 1986 big bang under margaret thatcher and the financial sector is basically an outpost of the American financial sector. That's what the city of London is. So the sterling sterling value, and I would argue from their British living standards, are effectively floated on free capital flows between the United States and Britain. And so what will happen if the US interest rate gets substantially higher than the British interest rate is capital will flow from British government bonds into American government bonds. And that'll happen naturally. The markets will do it. And sterling will fall and there'll be turmoil in the British bond market. US interest rates are already higher than Britain's. Um, the current federal f- funds rate as of May is 5 to five, 5.25%. So it's about half a percentage to three quarters of a percentage higher. So I think the, the Central Bank personally, the Bank of England is being very liberal <laughs> With their interest rate policy, I would not want to see another scare. If I was the Bank of England, and for that matter, if I was the government, I would not want to see another trust scare in the bond markets. So, to my mind, given the fact that Britain has higher, substantially higher inflation than the United States and a lower interest rate, I'd be of the opinion that. If I was at the Bank of England right now, I'd want my interest rates to be at the very least equal to American interest rates. Now, I do think that's probably the reason that the bank hiked the rates. And I believe also said there probably will be more uh, rate hikes on the horizon. So I don't think the Bank of England misunderstands this situation. After all, they just experienced the the trust panic. But I think people in markets have forgotten about the um, specific place of Britain in the world. I think the economic commentators here have forgotten that, even though that happened in the trust government. And I think really it puts the Bank of England in a difficult position because they can't really communicate this outright because doing so would show up a very unpleasant structural feature of the British economy that I don't think the Bank of England and I don't think the Treasury want to advertise. Yet keeping mum about it and not telling anybody means that you're getting this massive pushback from economic commentators who who, since they haven't worked in foreign co- currency markets before and they haven't worked for the bank of england's sterling management division or whoever talks about these things they don't know they just they they are just naive to this problem so um i think the banks are between a
1: rock and a hard place I'm i'm not really sure what they should do i think there are a few issues here the first is that inflation is consistently overshooting the bank of england's expectations i think It was only back in February that they were uh, predicting that inflation would finish the year at about 4%. And now they've already upwardly revised that by 25% to 5%, right? I know it only sounds like one percentage point, but that's a kind of 25% increase essentially from where they expected inflation to be only in February. We're only now in the middle of May and we've already gone up to 5%. And for the average person in the street, it feels like a lot more than that because, of course, food and uh, energy bill inflation is much higher. I think food inflation in Britain is running at something like 20% at the moment, which for the average person in the street who spends a much higher proportion of their income or their disposable income on food and on things like eating and electricity is a really painful blow. But at the same time, headline inflation itself is much higher than the actual interest rates. Real interest rates are actually still quite strongly negative, aren't they? So, you know, it feels like there might be justification on that side of things for rate hike, even kind of excluding the uh, currency fluctuations. But at the same time, uh, there are indications that uh, the economy is struggling For instance, these interest rates are really going to affect uh, mortgage holders in the UK. By the end of this year, there'll be 1.3 million British mortgage holders who come off fixed-rate mortgages and have their mortgages reset to a much higher level, which will mean thousands of pounds extra in payments per year. That's going to be a real hit to the real economy. You and I have discussed this on uh, Multipolarity on many occasions, Philip, that we fear that the housing market and real estate in general is probably going to be the channel through which real economic pain is projected from the realms of finance and monetary policy into the real economy. And it would seem that these interest rates are going to do that. But you are right as as well, I think, that Britain is quite uniquely exposed because of the way its economy is set up. It's very service-orientated. It it, it has a very small manufacturing sector compared to other developed and large economies. It, It has a much smaller manufacturing sector than countries like Germany, the US, even Russia. But in addition to that, that services sector is very much focused on the financial sector. It has a real outsized financial and investment banking sector. So it is very much exposed to market flows in ways that countries like Germany, for instance, might not be relative to the size of their economy. So it does increasingly feel like the Bank of England, even if the economy is showing signs of strain, they are kind of locked into a kind of a a higher interest rate equilibrium. I, I think in their official statement, they did say that, or, or, or they did suggest that they were perhaps going to take a pause now with interest rates, but there's no hint that they're thinking of reducing them at all. You know, you know, they think that this is the lowest that they'll be for a while. They might go up, but they almost certainly won't go down anytime soon. So it it really feels like the British economy is in a little bit of a, a zugzwang situation here where there's a lot of economic strain already. And yet, because of the way the economy is designed, because Britain has a consistent... Uh, trade deficit and therefore sterling is vulnerable Uh, because there are still manifest signs of inflation and because uh, interest rates are still strongly negative taking into account inflation there's no real justification for doing anything other than keeping them relatively higher or or pushing them higher still so it really feels like the economy's in a bit of a bad situation and although britain might be unique you know, this is happening to Western economies all over the world. Uh, the ECB is still going hell for leather, raising rates. It's unwinding uh, quantitative easing at a, or unwinding quantitative easing, or if you want to say quantitative tightening, it's up to you which way around you put that. But either way, it's doing that at an ever more rapid pace. The Federal Reserve is doing likewise. So, although Britain might be feeling the effects of these kind of contradictory tidal flows, a little bit more than the others, you know, the others are still suffering as well. It seems like a kind of a Western wide phenomenon at the moment.
0: Just to say something about the high rates of inflation in Britain at the moment, uh, before going to the general picture, which I think is very important. Just before the rate hike, Bloomberg reported on um, some kind of uh, immediate data out of Reed recruitment on salaries reed recruitment's measure is very much a provisional measure it can't be taken as kind of you know the official wage metrics we get with whatever it is maybe a three-month lag i'm not sure what it is it's a few months here it's not as accurate or reliable as that but last time the reed recruitment salary numbers went gangbusters it predicted the inflation about 12 months out which makes sense because wages are often one of the biggest components of inflation what it showed is that the um, that wages as of now as in you know this month May April maybe the data is from are rising at about 10% a year which is very 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 high this means that there's a potential that the UK is experiencing a real full-on wage price spiral this is something that's been buried the discussion of this has been buried because um, frankly, Economists affiliated with the Labour Party do not want this discussion happening. They are currently supporting strikes by major unions in this country that are demanding higher pay. And if it ever becomes public knowledge that these strikes are in any way contributing to the economic problems, it will be a huge political problem for Labour. So Labour-affiliated economists have been denying in very loud terms that there's a wage-price spiral. And any time I've mentioned it on Twitter, I've seen people who don't follow me pile into my comments. <laughs> this is a real problem, because if we are experiencing a wage-price spiral here, as the reed recruitment data suggests, the Bank of England need to get this under control immediately. Britain is not in a strong position to deal with something like this. It's not America, it's not even europe we've just discussed what the what the underlying structural problems are those structural problems could lead to some really bad voodoo down the line if there's a wage price spiral and if people want to see what that looks like rewind back to 1976 when there was an imf bailout of this country I'm not saying there's going to be an imf bailout but if the inflation gets completely out of control who knows what happens So that's on the inflation front. On the front of the more general picture, I agree with you. This is a similar trend across all the West, and the UK seems to be experiencing it in uh, a more rapid form. What is this? I mean, we can talk about all the causes. We can talk about the sanctions policies. We can talk about the energy crisis. We can talk about the wage price spiral that might be developing in Britain. We can talk about sterling weakness and so on. But the broad theme connecting all these things is... This is a decline in living standards in the West, right? The way that we see declines in living standards isn't so much through recessions. Recessions can cause temporary declines in living standards as the economy goes through a bad patch and people lose their jobs and so on. But to have a broad-based decline of living standards in a country, you typically see that through inflation. And that's exactly what we're seeing right now. And the question is, whether we can stop this decline, that is an open question. And that depends on how geopolitical relationships pan out over the next 10 years and how they're, how they're managed. I definitely fear that if we continue going down a conflict route, as we currently are, that these living standards will continue to decline and decline and decline. And the people who are pushing for the conflict route, thinking that it will secure our position as being stronger... We'll end up seeing that it ends up just making us weaker.
1: Look, I I mentioned the word zugzwang before. I'm, I'm I'm not sure if you or other people enjoy chess. I'm not a great player myself, but zugzwang is a is a position in chess where any move that you might make leads to defeat. So you you can have a certain position on a chessboard, and your opponent puts you in a position where literally. Any of the available moves that you could make, make your position considerably worse and ultimately lead to defeat. And I do fear that Britain, the British economy, is in that position. And as you say, it might be an accelerated or a steroid-enhanced equivalent of what's affecting the Western world in general. And I'll explain why. If you look at the British economy... It's really taken the economic model that has been prevalent across the West for the last 43 years, 45 years maybe. And it, as much as any other Western economy, has really taken that to heart and really implemented that. So it has liberalized its economy considerably. It's taken vast swathes of the economy out of public hands and privatized it. There's very little that is still in public hands in the UK at the moment. Most of it is privately controlled and and perhaps regulated to a certain degree. Uh, it has very much liberalized its job market. It has been incredibly open to labour movements. There's been very high migration into Britain uh, since at least nineteen ninety eight. It has liberalized its uh, trade and capital accounts. It's really bought into globalization. It has a high degree of capital freedom, which means the ability to push capital or money in and draw it out of the country. I mean, it's, it's really been an exemplar in many ways of the kind of the neoliberal orthodoxy. Now, what have we got in Britain at the moment? Well, you talked about the potential for there to be a wage price spiral. And I think there is such a potential because even though... The British job market is very heavily de-unionized. We have a spate of strikes. We had a, a, a lot of strikes over the, the Christmas 2022 and, and kind of New Year 2023 period, but now those strikes are coming back, and we're looking at a series of summer strikes in a whole range of industries, from you know the National Health Service and, and, and doctors through to airport workers through to to train transportation workers and 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 i actually have a lot of sympathy for these workers because since the 2008 credit crisis they saw their wages just stagnate there was hardly any growth at all that you know they might have gone up a little bit or down a little bit but their real standard of living that their real disposable income really stagnated now we've had a couple of years where in real terms it's gone back over a great deal because of very high inflation. So the wages that people have now, compared to the wages that they have had 18 months ago, they might look the same in, in, in you know, the numbers in their paycheck or that go into their bank account every week, but they don't stretch nearly as far because, as we discussed, things like food has gone up by 20%. Energy prices have gone up by perhaps even more. Uh, transportation is quite expensive. So I... I, I understand where workers are coming from and anybody who has the ability to try to get more from their employer will try to get more so i think it's entirely possible that there is a wage component to the to the wage price spiral and if the bank of england doesn't get a grip on that very quickly then there's going to be problems but the problem is the way they get a grip on that quickly is by squeezing the money supply to crush the economy to basically ratchet down on wages because. You know, demand for labor isn't what it was, right? And that makes people a lot poorer. Or they don't get a grip on it, and inflation continues to run much higher than wage growth, in which people are much poorer anyway. And either way, I think Britain is heading, unless there's some kind of change, because it has a big trade deficit at the moment so it, it, it's very vulnerable because it's got a current account deficit and it's got a fiscal deficit so essentially we're spending a lot more than we raise in tax and we're reliant on our ability to do that on the kindness of foreigners who buy our bonds okay and you've just explained why that's so vulnerable Liz trust wanted to cut taxes and by doing that she would have increased the the budget or fiscal deficit okay and that caused the bond market to have a bit of a heart attack now it might be the case as well if the bank of england doesn't keep pace with the interest rates of other central banks that might cause the bond market to have a heart attack either way the fiscal deficit i.e. our ability to spend more than we tax would be in danger now the way to deal with that is to start spending less or taxing more either way people are going to be living worse in the UK. You also have inflation making people's lives worse. Or you have the Bank of England controlling inflation by crushing demand in the economy and causing a recession. That's going to make life people, life for people worse. It really could be that Britain... I'm not saying that one day Britain's going to wake up and find itself in another version of the Great Depression with tens of thousands of workers marching from Tyneside to Westminster to protest or... Um, you know people uh begging on the streets and families going to the poorhouse. No, but we could very easily have another decade and a half where, combined with the period of time after the global financial crisis in two thousand and eight two thousand and nine, we suddenly find ourselves poorer than Eastern Europe, for example, and relatively speaking that's going to be a big decline in living standards, and I think that because, as I said earlier, Britain has really taken to heart, really implemented, really implemented with a convert's zealotry the neoliberal orthodoxy of social liberalism, uh, economic liberalism, open borders for capital and migration. But, you know, Because it's done that more than the rest of the West, perhaps it's seen a kind of accelerated version of this. Maybe it's more vulnerable to some of the imbalances that have built up in the world. we you know, we've got huge trade imbalances in the world. You know, the, the Asia has become much richer. It's making more. It's more productive. And perhaps now things are just unwinding, and Britain is now facing the consequences of that. But whatever the reasons are, I think Britain's in trouble, and I think it's a kind of canary in the coal mine for a lot of the, the rest of the Western world as well. Uh, California
0: screaming. So California have announced a large budget deficit. Um, it was uh, $10 billion more than was previously estimated. That puts it at $32 billion, which is about 10% of the actual budget itself, about $306 billion. obviously a very large budget for a state, but obviously California is one of the largest economies in the world. California had been running budget surpluses since about 2020. This had been unusual for California, which is typically a deficit state. The reason that it was running these surpluses is because there was a large tech boom after the uh, 2020 pandemic and the lockdowns. If people recall, that was basically investors betting that staying at home and working in your pajamas was forever. And so more and more technology would be needed. That all kind of ran out of gas as the lockdowns lifted tech stocks started to fall, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And since a lot of um, California's revenue comes either from the tech companies themselves, or from high earners, because they have quite high tax rates there in an American sense, probably not in the European sense, but they come from the, the high earners who are getting them through stock options and so on. So the revenue cycle in California is clearly tied to the tech sector. The issue here, and the, where it becomes a broader problem is that this is a deficit occurring in California without a recession. Usually, if you look at the numbers, California goes into deficit, heavy deficit, when there's a recession. That's obvious why tax revenues dry up and so-called entitlement claims, unemployment and so on have to go up in a recession. So the question that the California example raises is if it's already in deficit now without a recession, how bad is that deficit going to get in a recession? And this is where we get, a, we, get a more, we get a broader question. Definitely a broader question for America, but also for much of Europe. Cities and states, that is governments that don't issue their own currency like the federal government does, are highly reliant on property taxes. So the average city or state gets 17% of its revenue from property taxes. If you look at specific cities, uh, notably in America, blue cities, like San Francisco and New York City, it's more like 30% of the revenue is coming from property taxes. Now these cities already have problems. The problem is basically twofold in America and in Europe, we share one of these problems. The problem in America is since the um, controversial protests, some people would say, others would say riots, cities in America have seen a massive spike in crime. And I don't think Europeans understand what a bad spiking crime this is. America's already a very high crime place. Its crime rates are more similar to developing economies than to the rest of the West. Murders are about four times higher, I think, off the top of my head, than in Europe. But they've seen basically a, a 50% increase in metropolitan area murder rates. Now, that diverges. Boston hasn't been as bad. New York hasn't been quite as bad. Chicago has been very bad. You know, you can go down the track. Philadelphia has been really bad. But, you know, very large, noticeable increases in violent crime. The second problem is work from home. Although work from home hasn't delivered the Jetsons future that some people promised it would, it has put pressure on commercial property. The commercial property markets now everywhere are under an awful lot of pressure. And commercial property revenues are a huge component of city and state revenues. That, that counts here as well. You can, you can translate this into London. And by the way, even though London hasn't seen a massive surge in crime post pandemic slash protest movement as America has, if you've lived in London, for a few years, the quality of life has deteriorated there. It's got dirtier. The public transport system is effectively broke. The government's trying these new, it's called ULES taxes, which tax you for basically driving into certain areas. Of course, these are promoted based on the fact that they're green, but they're really just a cash cow. They're like the parking meter of green policy. A lot of people kind of have had a little bit of enough with London (laughs) If you've been there recently, you probably know that. So across the board, I think the general theme here is that cities have become less livable for a variety of different reasons. And there is a chance now that we could see what might be called detroitification. That is an exodus due to secular reasons, whether that be rising crime, falling general standards of living. And then on top of that, the potential for extreme fiscal pressures, coming from collapsed property markets, collapsed tech sectors. And this could reign in a very, very different world than the one that
1: many of us have grown up in, really. I think that's very interesting, Philip, because I'm, I'm not sure people quite realize the, the, the degree of trouble that commercial real estate is in. I think I'm right in saying that commercial real estate vacancy rates across the U.S. are almost at uh, 20%. And I'm sure in some cities uh, it's even higher and others it'll be lower. I think you're right that work from home uh, hasn't quite worked (laughs) uh, to the degree that some of us perhaps thought and perhaps even hoped that it might work. But it has had some effect. I mean, I don't live in London myself, but I I, I do know a couple of people who uh, live and work there. and, And they both say that things have moved to more of a hybrid situation. I have another friend who owns a small company, and he's looking to downsize his office quite dramatically. They're just going to have a few desks and hot desk and a a conference room. I think that's the case all over the West. A lot of companies are looking to downsize their office space. They might still have an office, but it might not be as big. Others will be able to go to work from home completely. And of course, this has knock-on effects. You you don't take your your overcoats and your suits to the dry cleaners in the city anymore you don't go and get your lunch in the city you don't necessarily do your shopping in the city so you know the retail side of things gets hit as well and of course cities make a lot of their money from either the sale of land to build real estate on or the taxes that they take off real estate. And then there's also the commerce and industry and money, things like public transport become far less viable if you've only got 50% of the people traveling in and out of the city every day. It is a real issue. And of course, the other problem is in the United States, I'll give you one guess which banks have got the biggest exposure to commercial real estate. Yes, you've guessed it small banks who are already in trouble because of the interest rates we were speaking about earlier in the episode and the series of defaults that we've discussed in previous episodes. Small banks in the U.S. originate 80% of commercial real estate bank loans. So I think this is a big issue and I think you're 100% right to to draw people's attention to the fact that California might be a bit of a, a canary in the coal mine. I think we've all
0: grown up in a world, at least if you're an 80s baby of any sort, even maybe if you're a 70s baby, and certainly if you're a 90s baby, of the kind of dominance of the cities. Um, We saw this in kind of really emerging 90s culture. I guess people maybe don't think about it that much. But if you think of the kind of sitcoms back then, Friends, Seinfeld, uh, Frasier, these ones, they're all kind of city focused. And they're about you know going to the city and living your life in the city and so on. And they contrast very much with the more suburban-focused sitcoms you probably have seen in the 60s and 70s. Well, 70s, I guess, sitcoms kind of come around. But everything, music, everything, all, all, the, all the trends were very urban. And most people, not most people, but most people who end up with kind of semi-professional careers or professional careers or anything like that, tend to gravitate toward the city. And if these trends take hold, if the cities become, frankly, bankrupt and partially unlivable, I don't think people will be as inclined to live in them. And that'll have a huge, I think, aesthetic change for how people live their lives. I mean, living in cities is the kind of classic globalizing thing to do. Anytime there's a big wave of globalization and so on, metropolitan centers spring up around the world. And you, we've almost had, because of air travel, this this almost like corridor of globalization where you can hop from city to city. Some of us are arch-globalizers and have actually lived in multiple of these cities and know how it, how it feels. You become quite rootless doing it. it. There's no doubt about it. If the cities become partially unlivable, all that will change. And it, it will have immediate consequences for globalization because this, this city-state network almost that's been set up around the world won't exist, at least in the same way that it does now. So, you know, we can look at this as an economic problem and we can debate, Oh, maybe the cities can get more bailouts and so on. I'm sure some of this stuff will happen, but if this is a broad trend as it appears to be, I think that the, the way the world works will be altered in kind of fundamental ways. If people are reluctant or more reluctant to live in the city.
1: Actually, I I think this an even, uh, you know, it's a, in terms of the kind of the big picture that you're talking about there, I think there's an even more immediate punch in the solar plexus that would come from a downturn in the, in the prospects and successes of cities. And that's mainly that a lot of economic uh, productivity growth, a lot of economic growth in general and innovation comes from the agglomeration effects that cities involve right it's getting a lot of people from different industries or the same industries or different supply chains and in the same place close to each other that has real beneficial effects for economies you know like you look at a country like china a lot of their economic growth has been driven by urbanization this this great flood of hundreds of millions of people from the late 70s to the present day really moving from uh, rural areas into the city now that's obviously more pronounced because they were really in kind of uh, high poverty in rural areas and moving into these kind of great almost victorian manufacturing centers but i think you know you might see something like that in reverse happening those kind of agglomeration effects are are not something to take your eyes off especially given you know in britain at the moment some cities like oxford it's a very small city, certainly compared to London, but they're dividing the city up into 15-minute zones and you're not allowed to drive between the zones. And that could have negative consequences for the agglomeration benefits that you get in the city. And, you, you know, you mentioned these ULES, uh, ultra-low-emission zone areas, which are kind of uh, tax under the veil of uh, green policy that are happening in London. And that might have similar effects where, just getting from place to place in the city makes it less attractive. Whether you can replace the kind of the physical agglomeration effects of cities with uh, the internet remains to be seen. <laughs> I mean, we all thought that we w- would all be able to work from home as effectively and as efficiently as we could work from the office. I think the jury at the very least is still out on that. Marco Polo a Yeah. So
0: it was reported this week that Italy will be, looking to pull out of the Belt and Road Initiative. Now, just a little bit of background on this. Italy signed up for the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative, which is, of course, their strategic investment initiative in 2019. Um, It was the first and, I think, only country uh, in the G7 to join. The Belt and Road was typically associated with poor developing countries that would sign up to get effectively free Chinese infrastructure and inward investment and better trade terms. It was very strange that Italy signed up. It wasn't characteristic of any other country. It was a very unique thing to do. The politics of it probably show why it was so unique. It was a pretty hotly contested issue in Italy. The main proponents of it were the Five Star Movement. Without putting too fine a point on it, the Chinese appeared to gain influence within the Five Star Movement, especially when the comedian Beppo Grillo was uh, in charge of it. The Five Star Movement saw this as an alternative development path for Italy. Now, obviously, Italy's had, since the adoption of the euro, seen a stagnation of its industrial base. And Italy is still, despite the stagnation of its industrial base, a major industrial economy, even though many people don't think of it that way. This move was had a lot of pushback. It's difficult to know what was going on behind the scenes, but what happened on the Main stage was that when the Five Star Movement went into government with the Northern League, so that was a, a relatively left-wing Five Star Movement, although unusual left-wing party going into a coalition with a right-wing, a populist party. They had a, a kind of a, a president that was kind of almost he was almost an elected monarch. He was a, he was a neutral figure called Giuseppe Conte, and he was put in charge. Now he was a champion of the Chinese idea. And he, as far as I can tell, pushed it through. Now, that would signal to me that although the Belt and Road sign-on was a minority position within the the Italian state, there were people within the Italian state who thought that this might be a good idea. And the way that they framed it was that Italy could be the go-between between Washington and Beijing, which is actually quite an interesting idea. Now, after the collapse of that government and and Mario Draghi got back in with another so-called technocratic government, all the pushback came on the Belt and Road Initiative and the general Chinese outreach. The situation basically reverted to the norm. There was a lot of explicit talk about Atlanticism and how Europeanism and Atlanticism needed to reign the day and so on. And this was before the Ukraine war, before Russia and China formed an alliance, before the emergence of the BRICS plus growth that we've seen recently. So the final twist in the plot, before we talk about the idea itself, the economics of it and so on, is that the um, they're trying to put this to bed under Georgia Maloney's populist right government. Maloney's government, I think this is kind of a bit of a crowning jewel in a sense for the populist right. A lot of people think that when populist right parties get into power, things change. And with Maloney, we've seen exactly the opposite. Maloney has been an extremely normalizing force in Italian politics. At the time when she was, when she got elected, there were a lot of rumors going around that Mario Draghi personally mentored her and so on. I, it seems credible to me, actually. And that Maloney is trying, I presume, to normalize the social conservative part of her party's platform while not shaking the cage at all on any issues of geostrategic importance, economic importance, anything like that. Now, whatever we think about that, that seems to be what is going on. It is interesting, though, I think, worth noting that a a politician that probably would have been seen as a disruptor has become such a normalizer in Italy. But that's the twist of the story In the run-up to
1: Maloney's election, there was a great deal of worry in Western foreign policy circles that she would be the classic kind of European popularist who wanted to move away from Western foreign policy norms, from kind of adherence to the rule-based order, uh, the rule-based international order, uh, in inverted commas. But it's turned out not to be the case. She's actually been uh, very strongly Atlanticist, I would say, In her tendencies, she has got quite heavily involved in the Ukraine war, supplying Ukraine with, uh, for instance, the Asta anti-air system. And she's been a great supporter of broader Western policy on Europe's eastern approaches. And I think that this latest announcement that they're going to move away from any prospect of involvement in China's Belt and Road Initiative is another example of Georgia Maloney's Atlanticism. This sort of news item is going to crop up again and again in the coming months and even perhaps the coming years. I think there's a big battle going on at the moment for the soul of Europe. And what that battle is, is this. On the one hand, you have the Atlanticists. The most extreme and obvious example of the Atlanticists in the United Kingdom, which Although it left the European Union, it is, is, is still very much part of Europe. They're, and they v- very much believe in tying their prospects to those of the United States. This idea that they and Europe are strongest when they're acting in unison and they're working with the United States. So, other examples of Atlanticists would be Maloney, I would say, and also, for instance, the Green Party, which is the junior coalition partner within the G- within the German government. The Green Party is also arch-Atlanticist, I would say. In the other corner, in the blue corner, you have what I call the autonomists, those who want greater strategic autonomy for Europe. They'll still have good relations with the US, but it'll be more transactional in nature. They will make decisions for Europe based on what's good for Europe. So if the United States gets into a big fight and potentially even a war, but certainly a cold war with China, the autonomists would want Europe to kind of stay out of that or at most perhaps be a bridge, a balancing force between China and the United States. Because China, for Europe as a whole, is Europe's biggest trading partner. The US is still Europe's biggest export market, but for overall trade, China is Europe's biggest partner and i think the autonomists led most prominently we've discussed it on the podcast a few episodes ago emmanuel macron the president of france but also i suspect with a very strong support within certain parts of the german government i suspect the rank and file of the uh, spd the social democrats who currently uh, lead the coalition in germany they would be autonomous as well they would like europe to make policy that's good for europe and they don't want to you know shackle their cart to the uh the runaway u.s carriage especially when it comes to things like china so i think i mean a, a few weeks ago we discussed macron uh, saying that Europe should forge its own way. He just returned from China. We've also covered Schultz and his visit to China and and some of the things he's done there. And I think we'll also in coming weeks cover stories like Maloney trying to withdraw from Belt and Road. I think there's a big battle for the soul of Europe at the moment. Quo vadis Europa, which way is it going to go? Is it going to go try and push towards strategic autonomy? Or is it really going to shackle itself to America and we're going to have a kind of um a bi-multipolar world order where you've got kind of China and the U.S. Uh, on one side and, and Europe kind of linked with the U.S. and Russia kind of linked with China. Who knows? But certainly I think this is a, a really interesting little nugget of information that Maloney wants to withdraw from Belt and Road because that suggests me to me that she's very much in the Atlanticist camp. How long she'll stay in government, I don't know. Governments in Italy t- tend to change very quickly, but that's the way it seems for now.
0: I think it's worth talking about the economics of what Italy did with the Belt and Road, because they're worth thinking through, not just in terms of whether it makes sense or not, but if you can figure out whether it makes sense, I think it actually gives you some probability that it might be a long-term trend, if you assume that countries often do what makes sense economically, which may not be the case here. But it is certainly worth thinking through. In terms of their trade partners, Italy exports relatively little. To China. The 2020 figures show Italy exports slightly more to Poland than to China, about 13.2 billion euros worth to Poland, about 13 billion to China. Yet on the import side, China is their third largest partner in trade. So what this means is that Italy is running a very, very large trade deficit with China. It's their largest trade deficit by far. Now, when you run a trade deficit, the person that you're trading with is racking up claims on your economy. And what you would like them to do is two things. First of all, recycle those claims into real inward investment into your country, rather than just holding your government bonds or holding um, equities or something like that. You'd like them to play that into FDI, real projects, factories, and so on. And the other thing that you'd like to do is increase your export share with them. Get in some sort of a trade negotiation where you say, look, you guys are importing. We're importing a lot from you. Can you guys import a, a, a bit more? From us, and we can balance out the trade a little bit, and then everyone can get rich. Italy has been running a current account surplus on the whole with the whole world since the uh, austerity measures that were implemented in 2008. They brought down labor costs basically, and they managed to eke out a surplus from years of running a deficit. The economy is now back in deficit again. Some of that is due to the current problems with energy prices, but not all of it. There was already a, a deficit registering in 2021. So it will be very much in in Italy's interest to get their trade rebalanced. From that point of view, Belt and Road is absolutely perfect from an economic point of view. It brings in the investment. The Chinese invest directly. In 2019, the Chinese invested through the Belt and Road project $2.5 billion. That's quite a lot. That's about 10% of the total imports that Italy's buying from china that's not insignificant and of course you hope the fdi will um will yield dividends down the road you know you're building productive capacity and then you can export more with that the one thing that sticks out though is that if china is italy's biggest trade deficit their biggest trade surplus is with the united states again by far and so you don't really want to bite the hand that feeds there You don't really want to annoy the Americans if you have already established a trade relationship that is massively imbalanced and that you're exporting far more to America than you're importing from America. So the politics of it are kind of interesting. China is looking at its its largest trade deficit partner on the one hand and its largest trade surplus partner on the other. The two don't like don't like each other very much, and are trying to tear it in both directions. And they have to make a choice. Given that set of circumstances, is the right choice to go with America in purely economic terms? It's the right choice to go with America. Ignore the the diplomatic and so on. Maybe, I think it all depends on the relative growth rates of both countries. If you think China is going to grow far faster than America in the next twenty years, then the better bet there. Pure economic bet, not talking about diplomacy, not talking about military strategy, anything like that. The better bet is to go with China because it'll have higher growth rates. If the low growth rates in America and Italy pan out, which they probably will over the past next 10 years, um, or at least the lower growth rates, then you'll see those trade tables move significantly in the next five to 10 years if you continue to allow trade. If you assume that the Italians are there, are rational, and they've thought this all through, and I think they probably have, this isn't very complex economics. It's very simple stuff. They probably made the decision to step away from this due to, on the one hand, obviously, military ties, diplomatic ties, you know, historic with the United States, go back to the Cold War. And then added in on top of that, they can tell themselves, well, at least the United States is our biggest trade partner. So, you know better a a bird in the hand than two in the bush, you know? Now, in this case, it might actually be better to chase the two in the bush because China's high growth rates, but you could at least rationalize it in that way. But I wonder if the growth rates do diverge, as I think we would expect them to in the next 10 years, whether if shaking up those trade tables with a much faster growing China and a slow growing or even stagnant United States might actually change that calculus. So if I were in America right now, I'd I'd be looking at them pulling out of that Belt and Road Initiative agreement as a success in terms of their stated foreign policy. But I'd also say, you know, they got into it in the first place and they didn't get into it just because of some crazy populist party coming up with a harebrained scheme. There's a lot of economic logic to what they did. And that means that as China grows, that economic logic may become more compelling in the future.
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of economic logic in Europe trying to maintain relations with China as much as it maintains relations with the United States. I mean, China is a a huge economy. I mean, by the purchasing power parity. Yeah, I think there's a lot of sense in Europe in general, not just Italy, but Italy Uh, As one of the prime candidates, because I believe I'm right in saying it still has the second largest manufacturing sector in Europe. People might not believe that, but after Germany, I, I think I'm right in saying that Italy's number two, despite the two lost decades since it joined the euro. So I think there's a lot of sense in Italy maintaining good trading relations with China. Uh, as we move forward, I think that's the you know the strategic autonomous view of things that it simply makes economic sense for Europe to be able to to trade and do business with whomever it wants and after all, China probably doesn't threaten france's interests, right It doesn't necessarily threaten Spain's interests or Italy's interests, so you know why shouldn't they get involved but of course, we have Cold War. coming perhaps even hot war god who knows but there's going to be a huge amount of pressure uh, for countries to pick sides now i guess one of the benefits of the european union is that all of those european countries can stick together and and have those strength of numbers rather than having either china or the u.s pick off individual members of the herd one by one but there are going to be these stresses as you say that go beyond common sense but i think you're 100 right in saying that there was a lot of common sense and certainly as china grows especially if it continues to grow at a faster rate than the western world over coming years the economic sense as you say is only going to increase in the future but i think this is certainly one of those uh, stories that we're going to see coming back and back onto the podcast in different forms and with different reference points but ultimately it's going to be the same story it's one that we really ought to follow just a quick message from me andrew collingwood for episode 10, I believe it was, Multipolarity ran a special question and answer session where listeners and followers to our Twitter and other social media accounts could submit questions for myself and Philip to answer. We had a great response to that, both in terms of the number of questions and the quality of questions we were asked, but also in terms of how that particular podcast was received by people. So. We'd like to do another one, it's about 10 or 12 episodes since that one, and I think it's time for another, so please, if you are listening and you would like to ask either Philip or myself or both of us a question about economics, geopolitics, or the confluence between the two of those things, please do. The more difficult, the better. And then we'll have a special podcast where we'll answer them and we'll uh, read out your name and your question. So please submit those to our Twitter account at Multipolar multipolarpod um, or by email. Thank you very much. We are fresh
0: from a huge victory.